Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to my show today. I am so um, excited to have Rena Patel, another social worker on my show today, and we will be discussing something that's very dear to both of our hearts, um, embodied health. Uh, across uh, cultures, mental health across cultures. So um, Rita, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing on the show today. She's the director of education for the Trauma Resource Institute. She earned her master's um, degree in social work from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, India, Mumbai, India, excuse me. And actually we both went there and I went there in person with her and we did a community resiliency model workshop, which was really exciting. This was back in 2019. Now she received um, the NASW, that's the National Social, Social, the National Association of Social Works Emerging Social Work Leader of the Year for Arizona in 2018. Um, she has worked on the San Carlos Apache Reservation and with the Pasquayaki tribe as a mental health therapist. She's also been a faculty associate for Arizona State University School of Social Work and has taught courses in diversity and oppression in the social work context. And she has a, very, a deep interest in the multi-generational effect of trauma and post-traumatic growth in marginalized communities. She's traveled domestically and internationally as a community resiliency model um, uh, faculty. And she has traveled to India with uh, with me, actually, and the Trauma Resource Institute as part of the C-Learning program, um, um, which was inspired by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and we were so happy to be very close at hand with him. And um, she helped to translate our media materials into Hindi. So today, we're going to be talking about resilience. And, you know, we both um, have read a book um, by Resma Menekum, and we like some of the things that he has to say. He's also a biological somatic-based therapist, but he says, resilience is built into cells of our bodies like trauma. Resilience can ripple outward, changing the lives of people's families, neighborhoods, and communities in positive ways. Also like trauma, resilience can be passed down from generation to generation. So even though we're going to talk about trauma, we're also going to talk about you know, what does help us cultivate our well-being and why do two models that we both believe in, the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model, what is, what is it about them that helps us um, when we work internationally in the way that we do, not only um, embracing um, people who have had so much suffering and trauma, but also helping them heal and thrive. So, um, welcome, 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 um, Rena. What is on your mind today as we're getting started? Oh, Elaine, I'm so honored to be here. Um, you know, it's just, 
I've, I know I've said this to you before, but it's such a, it's such an honor to have a platform like this um, to share some of those experiences that we've both shared, but also some of the things that I've, uh, that really drew me to this work uh, specifically. Um, and I also want to acknowledge that I'm here, um, as Elaine mentioned in Phoenix on the Akimel Otham and the Hohokam um, ancestral lands here in Phoenix, Arizona um, as well. So thank you so much, Elaine, for inviting me today. Well, I am just, I'm thrilled to have you. And and also, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about that um, and and the importance of the land acknowledgement. And I know that I'm in Claremont, California, and I am sitting on the Gabrieliano and Tongva um, ancestral lands. And tell us why that's an important thing for us to acknowledge. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I and you, your, the introduction you had mentioned, I worked, uh, I mean, I really had the privilege of working for two different tribal nations, one San Carlos Apache and then Basquayaki tribe, um, both here in Arizona. Um, I didn't really, you know, growing up in Arizona, I didn't really understand a lot of what had happened to indigenous communities and what continues to happen, I would say, um, to indigenous communities t- today. Um, and so it was through that process um, of understanding and learning um, what had happened to the tribal nations of this land and what actually continues to happen right now um, with so much land and culture um, being jeopardized um, through legislation, but through also in many other ways as well. As well. Um, and, you know, for me, the land acknowledgement, when I think about it, it's a way for us to honor our indigenous communities today, but also to pay homage and respect to the ancestral lands and who they belong to, um, and that we are actually just caretakers of this land, right? And so, um, you know, one of our wise friends that uh, we have in common, Elaine, Wendy Flick, she had said it so beautifully to me when I moved to Phoenix from Tucson, she said, you know, I know you will be a wonderful steward of this land um, that, you know, has been given, right, from the Akim, well, and not given voluntarily, but now I'm I'm here and I'm taking care of it. But just to have that respect and that honor to know where I reside now, where my home is, but being able to be a caretaker and a responsible caretaker of this land um, and to, you know, and I think in the work that we do at the Trauma Resource Institute, having that perspective in the lens that we don't, we don't exist in a vacuum, right, that Every there's so much that came before us, and there's so much that's going to come in, ahead of us as well. And so, for that, those reasons, I think the land acknowledgement is just so important, um, if for nothing else, to educate people, and so that hopefully we don't repeat history again um, in this way. Well, and so I know the other thing that um, I've certainly um, felt that you've been a leader in the the Trauma Resource Institute that I co-founded, that you're now the director of education of, is in the area of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And one of the areas that I think that you've brought to awareness for all of us is the aspect of intersectionality. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what that means, because I I think that it's important for us to understand the different ways that we show up in the world, not only how we view the world, but how others view us. Absolutely, Elaine. And so I'll do, if it's okay, I'll maybe share a little bit of what what we mean by intersectionality for folks that may not be familiar with the term, then talk a little bit more about it. Um, So I actually, you know, it's funny, I didn't know what this term was until I started to get deep into my, my social work studies, you know, and I, and I wish I had known about it a lot earlier, but when I, when I stumbled across it, and actually it was when I was a faculty member at Arizona State University studying diversity and oppression. 
that the intersectionality was a huge focus of the coursework. And this term was coined in 1989 by Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, she is a, a scholar and activist and also a lawyer. And so she was in that time fighting uh, a case for a black woman who was facing discrimination in the workplace. And what she found was there was no legal term to talk about what this woman was experiencing in her lived experience as a black woman. She, you know, the judge said, well, you know, this workplace isn't discriminating against black folks or women. And she was making the argument that because this person was a black woman, she was facing a unique type of discrimination. And so Kimberly Crenshaw said, we need to, we need to encapsulate this in, in some kind of term so that we can understand that when we have a meeting place of identities, there is a term for this. And so originally it was born out of this idea of race, class, and gender, since then, though, intersectionality has really grown to encompass so many parts of our identity. And I think um, in our trainings and how we've really come to adapt it and in the work that we do at the Trauma Resource Institute, we both look at it as meeting a meeting place of our identities um, in places that we've all experienced some suffering, right, with the world, but also a place where we can celebrate and experience incredible amount of strength and resiliency and a sense of self that's much deeper than just what we would maybe be able to understand just by looking at each other, right? And so I love that um, when we think about the nervous system and the body, which I know we're going to be talking about today, what it means to have that embodiment, intersections show up um, for things that you can see about me, but also the things that you can't see, right, that right. I have in my lived experience. And the same for you, Elaine, right? When I'm working with you or I'm talking to you, there's things I can see and things I, I cannot see about your lived experience. And so that's where our intersections come together. So are the intersections something that we ourselves identify or is that other people look at us and identify? Because you may look at me and say, oh, you wouldn't know that um, my great grandmother was a was a native Mayan, and that my mother and grandmother immigrated to the United States from El Salvador. Um, I have very fair complexion, so that's not something that you'd necessarily think about me if you just saw me. Exactly, and I think both are both are probably incredibly important, right? How we how we're perceived by the world, as you said earlier, is so important because that's going to impact how the world treats you and how the world treats me, right? But then there's also the piece of our own story and what that means for our own intersectionality, uh, how that shapes how I view the world um, and how I view my own lived experience. Um, and, and so I think both can be very true because both would impact how, how we navigate the world. Well, and I think as we've been discussing um, in the Trauma Resource Institute, the issue of intersectionality, we also have been, I think, really looking at um, how how we are viewed and how society view views us can also lead to advantages that you know what you're saying about you know the when Kimberly Crenshaw first coined this terminology is that you may not necessarily realize that you have certain advantages that others don't have by many different things, by, yeah. by your age, by your gender, by the color of your skin. And I know that now um, I just turned 70. So that's an older person. I don't feel 70, but you know, some people may look at me and go, Oh, well, what does she know? You know, if you're 20, you look at a 70 year old and think, huh, that she could be out on the pulse of what life is all about. Perhaps she might think that. And I'm going, <laughs> well, guess what? I've lived a lot of life. And so maybe I do have some wisdom 
wisdom here. But I think that we might classify someone based on, you know, their age, how they look, whatever it might be. And then we make determinations that may or may not be correct, but also that there can be disadvantages, right? And how people perceive you um, in that maybe not giving you a fair chance, may not be able to look at you in the same way when you're trying to you know, gain, you know, access to healthcare. And we know there's the issues of healthcare disparities that have happened, but for many people of color, as they have approached just trying to, you know, have a gynecological exam, and are they going to be treated in the same way as others? And we know that exists. So it's not something that is benign. It's something important for us all to think about, because I think it also can help us sometimes shape social policy. And how do we, how do we, you know, we talk m- much in our organization about equity and um, and justice, and maybe you can touch upon that a little bit in terms of, you know, how do we, with the intersections that happen that may lead to an equitable distribution of things that are important for society, how do we um, walk with justice in yeah. mind? Yeah, I think you bring forward a really important point, Elaine, because, you know, something that really um, comes to me as you say that is, you know, I think there's this myth that somehow by 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 redistributing our resources or working towards justice or correcting the system, that the folks that do have advantage or privilege will somehow lose out. And I don't think that's true. When I think about what happens to us as a society, if we are to correct the system, everyone can have the fruit right of the system that we all can gain and that we can have a much better community and a much better society, healthier, healthier for everyone, for all children, for all adults, if, if we were willing to do the things that we needed to, to correct the system, right? If we were able to give the access that's needed to, to make sure that there isn't inherent biases and structures in place and power structures in place that really do favor particular groups over others, right? Intentionally or unintentionally, right? Because as we know now, things are running on its own access in so many ways. And so I think there's, um, I think that's one piece that really comes to mind is that, you know, if we are to do this work and walk in this way, that all of us ultimately will benefit no matter what side of, what side of this you're on. And, and for all of us, that looks different in all of our identities. I'm thinking ability status for me. You know, in my ability status, I can walk, run, jump, play. I can do those things. I can go down the sidewalk. I don't have to worry about getting into buildings, right? And so for me, it would benefit me as well to have a society in which people who don't have my ability status, right, can also access every building, right, in every street corner and go to every park. And so I think, you know, even looking at it from all of our identities, it's really important to know that we don't lose out if other people are able to, to have access as well. And it's just- well, and I think about justice. I look, sometimes look at it because I work a lot with schools. Yeah. And I think about when I was a child, there was no accommodations made for children who had who learned differently. Yeah, And so that means that a child could be very smart, but because let's say of a certain processing challenge that they had, they might need extra time in order to accomplish taking a test where other kids could do it very quickly. But now we know there's extended time for tests. You have a bona fide learning um, disability that there are different things that are really codified where children then 
can have justice and more equitable treatment. And so then maybe that child who would have failed in school now is soaring in school because accommodations have been made to change the system. We now have special education teachers. We have so many different um, ways that children who learn differently can succeed. And I look at that in the same bucket of what we're talking about. Yeah. And and how important that is then for all of society, because then you could have had someone who couldn't maybe go on and let's say get their degree to become an engineer. But now, oh, you had dyslexia. So what what are we going to do to accommodate that? So we know because you could be a brilliant person and learn differently. And there's so many people like I remember um, one of the, uh, oh, there's so many different people who've had dyslexia. I think Albert Einstein had dyslexia, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But And if you learn differently, because I think he was actually mute. He didn't talk for much of his childhood. And so they might have thought, oh, there's something he's intellectually not abled, which of course he was one of the most brilliant individuals that ever lived on the face of the earth. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's so many different ways why intersectionality is important and why we have included it as part of our VISTA within the Trauma Resource Institute as we as we train people in the two models that I know that we both believe in very strongly. So let me get to another question. I mean, we have a few questions to talk about today. And so when we talk about adversity is not destiny, destiny, what does that mean to you? Adversity is not destiny. It's one of my, I know a lot of trainers say this is one of their favorites in the, in what we teach. Um, and so I was, I was reflecting on this um, prior to the, to the show today. And I was thinking about, um, there's a quote that I'd like to read um, by Gemma Benton. And she's a native American um, artist uh, from a, Menominee uh, tribe, and she's Filipino. Um, she said, Our ancestors knew that healing comes in cycles and circles. One generation carries the pain so that the next can live and heal. One cannot live without the other. Each is the other's hope, meaning, and strength. And I love that because I think about adversity is not our destiny. And again, in the sense of our generations, right? That um, you know, we think about it just in, in, in the model. We talk about it with um, our adverse childhood experiences or the things that have happened to us, right, and in, in our life. But I, I love what I love about both the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model is that I can take that generational perspective, that I can really take a step back and look at what generations before me have endured, right, the pain that maybe they have gone through, so that I can live and heal, but also what my leg of that is, right? That the pain that I'm experiencing perhaps right now, right? Because of my own lived experiences, but what that means for the next generation as well. And I say that from a cultural lens. I say that as somebody who's grown up with two cultures, knowing that the intergenerational stress uh, on my life and my body has been very real. And so I know that there are pieces that I'm still working through so that the next generation can live and heal. And so I, you know, I see that all as part of a continuum. So when I think adversity is not destiny, I think of the power that I have, but also the power that my ancestors have now given to me, you know, that have said, here you go, Raina, and passed it on so that I can now look at the next generation and say, adversity is not your destiny, you know, and here you go. Um, And I do believe that the work I've done with these models in my own body have really created a whole new dimension of what that could look like um, in terms of the healing that can take place for the next generation. Well, I'm kind of also thinking about um, 
both of us are first generation. And so, you know, here my mother came from El Salvador. Your parents came from India. And I mean, I know why my mom came here. She came here for a new life. She came here for a better life. And I know that she and my grandmother did a lot of different tasks in order to be able to make money in order to come and live in the United States. I mean, my I remember very clearly my dad driving my mother and grandmother to the uh, tomato ca- canning um, factories that were in Santa Clara County because they canned tomatoes. Now, you know, people might not, if you saw how my parents, you know, prospered in this country, they may not have said, well, oh, you did that when you were younger, but that was part of their history. And that was part of what they were hoping that they could accomplish. They worked hard in order to have myself, who was their child, who was the first to go to college. So that was, that was part of the fruits of their labor that I know that they were very, they felt very um, proud of. And I imagine you must have stories like that from your family as well. Absolutely. I think about my grandmother. She, um, both of my grandmothers didn't go to um, what we would consider high school. They both did their education in India. And I think about eighth grade is where they stopped. Right. And so, you know, looking at my life now with a master's degree and, you know, the work I'm doing, I, you know, it just, um, I love that quote. um, And it's slipping me who said this quote, um, uh, but my, you are, you know, become your ancestors' wildest dreams. And so I think that because I think how amazing would that be, um, you know, just to to be able to live out life that way, um, you know, always thinking about what would their wildest dreams be in this moment for me to do and to can you continue to work towards. Um, and some of it, I'm sure they'd be happy and some of it <laughs> not so happy, you know, looking at Well, I think that is kind of one of the challenges is that when you come to another country, you're influenced by so many different things that are outside the scope of what they thought was possible. Like I can remember that when I uh, met my husband and we fell in love and we went and talked to his family that were all from a part of Norway and they were a certain religion. And we said, well, we're going to get married in this church. His grandmother, who was probably 80 at the time, said, to my husband, you're not going to get married in that church, are you, Jimmy? And so, of course, we did end up getting in that, getting married in that church, but that wasn't quite part of her paradigm that her grandson would marry someone who was of a different faith. And I know that happens also yeah. in Indian culture, I imagine, as well. Absolutely. Well, and Elaine, you're familiar with with my with my love story. And so, for those of you that are listening, I you know, I'm a Gujarati American. And so in Gujarat, um, especially in the community I'm from, you know, we, uh, for, I would say I would one of the first women in my family to not have a um, arranged marriage in the traditional sense, but also in the not so traditional sense. And I ended up marrying a Mexican American, wonderful person. Um, and, and so that did cause a lot of, um, a lot of distress and rifts. But I, again, I think, you know, one of the pieces that um, of the work that I'm I'm thinking about in terms of the generational work, right? So that way, you know, marrying who you love, even considering that as a radical act, right? And what that looks like. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that, and there there could be a lot of suffering with making that decision, <laughs> right? And so I think those are the kinds of things we're talking about when we're talking about being first generation, we're talking about coming here from yeah. with, with a certain vista of how life might be different, that maybe that I love that about uh, <laughs> that your, your, uh, your children may live out your wildest dreams as you come to a new country and that, that may happen or may not happen. Right. <laughs> um, 
but I think that's one of the reasons too. We we both have seen suffering in our own families, and that here we both became licensed clinical social workers that work in the area of trauma. But many people don't realize that when we're a social worker, we may work in the area of trauma, but we also work very much with both feet in the work of strength and resiliency yes. and how to empower and help people heal. So I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit now um, also about why you believe um, and we talked about embodied healing, right? Why yeah. is that important? And when we talk about the biology of the human nervous system, and as you have, you know, not only worked in the U.S. with different tribes and different cultures, but also you've worked internationally. And I certainly saw when we went to Mumbai and we were at the Tata Institute that people really globbed on to the model that we were teaching there. Mm-hmm. And here it was kind of created in the United States. It's it's what we call a biological approach rather than a Western approach. And, yeah. you know, why was it helpful to them? So maybe you can, you know, we're going to be taking a break in a little bit, but if you can just, you know, mention a little bit right now and we'll talk more yeah. about it after the break. Absolutely. I, um, you know, I think typically we, we talk about um, when thinking about this question that we all have a nervous system to access but, you know, I want to take it one step further because I realize, you know, there's there's a deeper piece here that resonates around both trim and crim, um, both the wellness skills and the reprocessing around trauma. And that is having access to parts of ourselves that otherwise are very difficult to have access to. And so I think it goes with what we were just talking about, Elaine, which is these experiences of our ancestors are housed in our body. It's in our cells and our DNA. It's in our lived experiences, right? Things that you are aware of and things that you're not. And I think that something that's really incredible about the models is that we have access to these parts of ourselves um, that's much deeper than what we could do with other types of work because we are working with the body, right? And so I do think that that's something that comes up for me when I think about why why are these models so cross-cultural? I think the, the other piece... Um, is that I know I've benefited from is also being able to access the wisdom and the strength, not just for myself, but also of my history, right, in my body. Um, So there are parts of this model that are much deeper than I think what we could do by talking um, for that reason. Um, And I will definitely say more about this um, after the break, but I was just curious, Elaine, if what, what you thought about even just that, the idea of just being able to access parts of ourselves that we otherwise couldn't well, I, I think that oftentimes, too, when we've had trauma, um, it's hard to access it. We may not even remember what our trauma yeah. is. And so when we work with the body, the body does seem to have an implicit memory about what's happened to us. So I think that we can then um, touch upon places that need to heal in ways that have no words. So I can talk to someone and they can tell me, oh, I had this trauma, but I don't want to talk about it. And I said, well, as you're just even sitting there with me right now, what do you notice happening on the inside? And so they may let me know that their nervous system has is getting activated, like maybe their heart is starting to beat faster and their muscles are tight. And that's the moment that I know that there are things that I can do to help alleviate the suffering in the body that actually magically and marvelously helps to also unlock more um, healthful thoughts about what may have happened to us, even if we can't remember all the elements of the story. And that's where, to me, the work becomes sacred um, Mm -hmm. because it can touch places where people thought they would never heal from. And I think we both have seen people say to us, I never thought I could feel this way. Mm 
yeah. and and get back a part of myself or maybe be the self that I always hoped I would be. And I feel like something has left me that I needed to release. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean to forget, but it means that it doesn't hold me back, that I can be all, all the ways that I want to be in mind, body, and spirit. So I think that's what we've both seen. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break right now. I knew that this time would go very fast with you. And when we come back uh, with uh, Rena uh, Patel, social worker extraordinaire, we are going to uh, talk a little bit more. We're going to talk a lot more about what this is embodied healing mean and give you some more ideas about it, because I think it will be important for our listeners to know, you know, if you're suffering, how can you even in a little way start to feel better? So we'll be back in a few minutes with Rena Patel and continue our conversation. We'll take a short break. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
And Rena is the Director of Education for the Trauma Resource Institute. And we've been talking about the trauma resiliency model and the community resiliency model and the work that we're doing. We got a, a message from one of our community resiliency model teachers um, on, on our break. Um, and so we want to do a shout out to Bo Dean um, from Wilmington, North Carolina. He's from New Hanover County. And he's been the leader in... Um, He's been one of the leaders in that part of our country that have has been leading an amazing resiliency task force. I'm going to have to have him come back on again, Rena. Yes. But, uh, he does a lot of creative things, and we're so happy that he's part of our family. But I think this is kind of leads us to the kind of the questions about, you know, what is it about these two models? Yeah. And I just mentioned what I think um, right before the break about working with the body is so powerful. And there is this amazing connection to when our body enters that state of well-being and we can sense that deeper breath, we can sense our muscles relax, that if I ask people, do you have any thoughts, any new feelings, meanings about this challenge that you have, people tend to say the most amazing things that, and they come up with their own solutions to their own problems. Yeah. And sometimes they are just amazingly sacred. So yeah. I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about your experience and what that's been like for you. Yeah, I um, and Elena, as you say that, you know, the piece about the wisdom that comes, I can't help but again, but think that that's that wisdom that you know it's implicit in us, right? It, but it also can be implicit from our from generations prior. I mean, the wisdom that we do have access to once we are able to work with our bodies and the things that can come to us. And I want to unpack a little bit about what culture is, since we are talking about the embodiment of cult and culture, um, because this is this is very much how I've come to these models and, and really, um, I think, have deep gratitude for what it's given me in my own lived experience, my own nervous system. But when we think about culture, we think about a way of life, right? How we interact with the world, the languages, languages we speak, the food that we eat, um, you know, rituals, customs. I mean, all of that is culture, right? Um, and I think what when I, when I came to this model, I came to this model first, the trauma resiliency model as a receiver of these skills. I didn't quite understand what was happening. I just knew that this was helpful and it worked for me. I think what happened for me culturally because of the trauma I was going through was so based in my culture that I needed permission to have choice of what I wanted to hold on to, what I wanted to let go. And I think that's the other piece of this model that's so sacred and incredible is that I think when we talk about culture, yes, it's important to celebrate culture, but I think it's just as important to say that there are parts of culture that can also be traumatic, that can be hard. So when I think about some of the things I've went through, I think about patriarchy and how that's manifested in my body through my culture, right? And so being able to be a receiver of these skills in my body, it felt like deep, deep work that was being done, not just for myself, but also for my grandmothers and great grandmothers, right? And for the future. And so I think, you know, for me, when I think about how this model has impacted me as somebody in my, in my lived experience and what I bring to the table, I think about that and I get a choice of what I want to pay attention to. Whether that, yeah, so I just want to, I want to say that because I think that to me has been one of the most sacred things about culture. Well, you know, and also, you know, you had shared about um, that you married, um, your wonderful husband, Adam, who I have met and I know, um, who is Mexican, but to also leave the cultural paradigm and to say to your one's parents, I'm going to have a choice 
that must not have been easy. And I imagine there are many people all over our country and other countries that are facing that same dilemma, is that if you fall in love, that doesn't necessarily, that's certainly something that we have embraced in the West, but that hasn't been embraced in every culture. So I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that. (laughs) (laughs) or not. (laughs) Well, what I'll say about that is I think I had to find a place of home in my own body first before I was able to find the courage to do that. And I think, you know, I also recognize I have great privilege in being safe in my decision to do that. I know that people are wanting to figure out how to be with people they love and it's not a safe situation for them around the world or even here in the United States and what that looks like. So I want to acknowledge that I I have that privilege of of being safe, but also that I wasn't able to find the courage to make that decision until I was able to to come together, mind, body, spirit around what that meant for me. It took took that type of work to do that. Um, And I don't know if I would have ever gotten there if I just worked with my thoughts around that and going back and forth about if this was the right decision or not. I don't know if I would have gotten there. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that. So maybe we could talk about the trauma resiliency model because we've we've talked a lot about the community resiliency yeah. model on the show, but the trauma resiliency model is um, something that um, I created um, and helped develop. Um, a, there were two women that were involved in the very beginning, um, Jeannie Everett and Lori Leach, but I kind of have taken it forward. They kind of went on and did their own things. But I think one of the core values of the model was that we wanted to bring in a biological approach. We wanted to make it accessible to people in the mental health field, but we wanted to make it accessible to people in the mental health field so that they would have, along with other approaches that were more cognitive and thinking, that they could have a biological model that they could take that didn't cost an arm and a leg, and they could learn the essentials of working with the body. And then we went on to create uh, trauma resiliency model level one and level two. And now through the Trauma Resource Institute, we have, I think is it every month we have, we have yeah. trainings going on and we have, you know, we have a lot of, um, I guess, interest in these models right now. Cause I know Absolutely. that you keep yourself busy in, in uh, finding enough uh, of our faculty to be able to uh, respond to the, to the desire about them to want to take the trainings. But I think that why, one of the reasons why I think they've been so um, embraced is because we have simplified very complex subjects um, so that it can be transferable to clients in a way that people can understand the neuroscience that has been out there now for a number of years, but in ways that people can hold on to them. And if you're not a neuroscientist that you can understand, oh, you have a, you have a break and an accelerator of your nervous system. And if you've had a lot of trauma, you can feel like your foot is stuck on the brake and your nervous system is just firing all the time and you don't sleep. You don't get to rest in the same way. So how can we help you know that you even have a break? How right. can we help you learn to read your nervous system? And I think that's when you're talking about choice. Yeah. If we have really simplified things and crystallized it too learning to read your nervous system, to tell the difference between sensations of distress and well-being. And when you can tell the difference, you can choose to water the well-being inside your body. And what if you can speak a little bit to what you have seen and how that plays out across cultures that you've worked with. Yeah. I um, It's something that comes to mind um, that I've been 
really following a lot of clinicians around is this idea of decolonizing our strategies and our mental health approaches. And I find it fascinating with the work that we're doing with this idea of choice, because it's it really is about sharing power with the clients, right? It's not about power over their body or their experiences. And I do believe that that is what I've seen when I've done this work whether it be in the military, you know, or in indigenous communities or in my own community or whatever that looks like, but that I'm sharing this power versus having power over someone in my role as therapist. And I think, you know, even just recently, I'm thinking, Elaine, of the training we just did two weeks ago, I had four different countries represented just in my small group. Why are folks attracted to what we're doing, right? It's because of that piece of just being able, like you said, to have skills, one that you can use right away, Right. But also that that the the piece around that choice and also being able to to come to someone and say that we honor your lived experiences and your body and your culture and not prescribe in a way that that does feel like we're we're repeating patterns of power also because as you know in our field that has been historically what we've done right in a lot of interventions and so i think that does attract a lot of people to the work that we're doing and i do think that we do it a little differently than other somatic models because we do give a lot of choice a lot of choice at every every step of the way we are with you and we're giving choice right so it's less about it's like we don't direct this is what you have to do We'll say, well, we invite you to do this. You can do it or not do it. Or this not. may yeah. this may be helpful to you or not. And the or not becomes very powerful when, especially when yeah. you've had a lot of trauma and you and all choice was taken away from you. But I think the decolonization too, and this is this kind of is not necessarily embraced by all mental health therapists, is we're saying we're not going to be directive and saying or interpretive. And right. saying, well, we think that you're, I think you're doing this because when you were 10, your parents got a divorce. If that's your story and if that's what you would like to believe, you know, we can, um, we'll have a discussion about it. But we would ask the person, well, what do you think from this exactly. place when you get into this place inside your body of knowing and feeling that you are in coming from the best part of yourself and you look at your life and say, yes. hmm, so would it be helpful for you to talk about what happened or not? And believe it or not, some people don't want to talk about what happened to them because they know that it's not where they are right now. It doesn't mean that they're avoiding talking about the past. People often say to me, well, are you saying that we don't have to talk about the trauma story? And I said, yeah, I am saying that. And people go, wait a second, that's how we heal. Well, not necessarily. And I really want all of our listeners to to know this, that that may not be your pathway for healing. Your pathway of healing can be from finding a a therapist who works with the body in the way that helps unwrap the body's story to what happened to you, where you can actually all of a sudden have a new meaning about what's happened to you that is that you can say, which may be I've heard people say, well, you know, it's not so important that I know what happened to me because right now from this place inside of myself, I feel like I have touched the deeper part of my soul, my sacred core. And from here, I can go forward in a new way. But that's not something I can say, oh, well, forget about what happened in the past, right? That has to come from the person. And that's where we call it the, you know, the decolonization. And actually, some people have called it the democratization of mental health because of 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 that philosophy which i do think comes from a deep place within myself yeah. um as a woman and as a person who worked for many years as a doula helping women have 
their babies through very, you know, childbirth is painful, but that didn't mean that a person couldn't be gently guided through this most painful experience of their life, physical experience, and um, be nurtured and embraced within the suffering. And even though people say, well, how is that similar to, you know, trauma? It is similar to trauma because it's being with someone, not being necessarily directed about what you are supposed to do. But in terms of knowing, seeing what's there, maybe having an understanding of the rhythms of the body that you can say, well, you know, it might be something if you'd like to or not to take a walk right now. We we suggest that in, in our trauma resiliency model work and our community resiliency model work. And if a person says, no, I don't want to go for a walk right now, they're like, fine, we'll just sit here together, right? So there's yeah. that invitation. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of your experience across cultures. Well, and I, I do want to ask you a question about that, Elaine. And um, before I do, I want to also acknowledge that I think the other thing I've seen across cultures is the um, how gently we come into the body. And it's something I've heard actually and from people from many different walks of life is the approach is gentle. And so it makes me think of your work as a doula and yes. what that looks like, because it is coming in in a way that is um, kind, um, supportive, you know, and like you said, being with someone. And um, and I love that. And that is something I've heard cross-culturally from folks is that it does feel that way. Um, and so my question to you, Elaine, is, you know, as you talk about, you know, how you, this really comes from deep inside of you, um, is that you, I know you've called yourself a feminist and, mm-hmm. and <laughs> in many ways. An old um, feminist. Um, But I'm curious because I know the trauma world, especially when you started, this was so governed by, um, by male, you know, male figures, scholars, activists, and mental health professionals. What was your aim in bringing this forward as a woman and as a feminist? What was, what were you hoping to do differently with this approach? Uh, It's interesting. Well, I think I was hoping, I think to make it accessible, affordable, um, making it um, invitational that, and also coming from the stance that my client knew more about what happened to them than I did, and that I could guide them to maybe thinking about things in a different way. But ultimately it was their journey. And I was there, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping as a gentle guide and helping them learn how to learn about their body, not just to even learn, and also learning about their body, but how the body and mind are connected. And that they on their own could see that once they started sensing their body in a different way, like not so constricted and open, that also had affected their cortex and how they started thinking about themselves. But I think that what I've learned is that we do live in a patriarchal system. And I can think about going to conferences and that to see that, um, especially in the beginning, I've been doing this for a long time that there were oftentimes many, many men who were the presenters and the majority of the audience, probably three quarters were women. There were more women therapists than than the men, but the men were the leadership. I always thought that was kind of interesting and not to say that I you know, learned from all of them in different ways, but I do think that there have been experiences I've had where women's thoughts have not been as embraced They've been more questioned. And I've had certainly had some very difficult situations that even with my kindness and wanting to come forward in a way that's invitational, uh, wasn't always received that way. So I learned that, um, that I had to keep going, knowing that from the best part of myself, I was doing something that 
and I didn't say this, but someone said this to me one time, Elaine, what you're doing can change seven generations. And I said, oh, come on. <laughs> you probably say that to everybody. But now that we've done the work, and this was many years ago, and we're like 15 years into the work, and to see that you know we are in 75 countries, I would never have imagined that. But I think part of it has been the approach and also that dedication to continue even when someone said you couldn't or that, you know, what? who are you to do this um, This and have this idea that has been said to me um, by um, many men, sadly, right? Who are you to do this? And who are you to do this as a social worker as well? Because as you and I both know, there's also hierarchy in the mental health system. And that's not to say that I have many friends that are psychiatrists and psychologists that I know I we have a co-respectful um, uh, uh, relationship but sometimes I think in just in society, we look at things from this patriarchal perspective that I think um, um, is not the best for all of society that also think, even if their biological base can still see things from a top-down kind of arrogant perspective and mm-hmm. not one that embraces. So um, it hasn't been an easy road, honestly, but it's been a worthwhile road. I wouldn't change it for one minute. Um Certainly, no one wants to experience trauma as they're on this journey of trying to bring an idea of healing to the world, but we do. Because I don't think, I think anything that's worth a darn, (laughs) I could say a damn, is sometimes you have to, you have to live through suffering. And from that suffering, I have to say, every suffering that I've had, I've learned from. So, one of the things I learned, and this is important for anybody that's thinking about, oh, I'm going to create something is that um, if you know something and you're coming from the best part of yourself and you're coming with um, ethics and morality and with that respecting people and the gentleness of this, keep going no matter what anybody says to you. Keep trying. You know, we now have research behind us. We have from very um, respected institutions. But if I would have stopped back in the beginning because of maybe powerful men, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it was the knowing that it, I had to go forward with it, even through the suffering of it. And that doesn't mean that everything I did was correct. Um, I learned from my mistakes and I made plenty of them. But every time you go through something like that, hopefully as a human being, part of what we can do is learn, oh gosh, I'll never do that again. And we hopefully make amends for what we've done and ask for forgiveness if we've done something that's harmed others. Not always will we be our uh, requesting forgiveness be accepted, but I have tried to walk in that way. And I have to say that my life, and I've lived a long life, most of my life is behind me. It has been, it has been a very um, meaningful um, life that's been full of suffering and joy and laughter and it has been a heck of a journey, and I'm still here. <laughs> so, <laughs> God knows. Um, but I think it's like it's really important that there is a patriarchy that I think still exists, and there's also something that we call misogyny, and that's you know almost like hating women, and that all misogynists are not men, mm-hmm. and so sometimes misogynists are women because they have swallowed the patriarchy. And then they start acting that way. And I, when I say, you know, men and women, I'm, I, 
I also want all of you to know that identify as non-binary. I'm not leaving you out. It's just that when I was growing up, we didn't have non-binary. And I, and I often think that I'm so proud of people that um, are transgender and are non-binary and they're speaking up because I think that that's courage. Because as we know that for some of them, it means, you know, my life. Um, and certainly we've, I've seen so much change in my lifetime in um, my friends who are, who were gay and lesbian transgender that they couldn't say who they were. And at least, you know, more and more people of course have, have spoken out who they are. And that certainly changed our world, but I'm, and I'm bringing that into the equation because I think it has to do with staying with something that's right. Even if so many people are saying it's wrong or how do you, how can you do that? And don't you know the implications of this? Um, And I see the good that we do. I see the good that we're doing with children and how people are um, changing. And there's something also that I want to make sure that I state, because some people have said to me, well, you're just teaching people how to you know, self-regulate. Isn't that a way of controlling society? And it's just the opposite of that. When we help people understand their biology, it's empowering. And it's like you know, a little a person saying to um, um, one of our therapists, my body's been talking to me my entire life, but I didn't know how to talk back. And here we're teaching people how to not only understand what happens to them when they have stress and trauma, but how to talk back to their body to bring them into a place of healing. And that to me is empowerment. And that's, I think, one of the primary reasons that I keep mm-hmm. doing this because I've seen it all over the world. And to see a little boy in Haiti or a little boy in India and see them change because they've recognized that they can, oh my gosh, how can I not keep doing this as long as I live? Now seeing that we only have a few minutes left too, Rena, you've asked me that question. So is there any parting thought that you want to say as we're ending today? I think uh, just speak to what you just said about isn't self-regulation a means of control. I would say um, my own life is, is an example of how that is not true, that I it was only until I learned to do that, that I was able to become the most powerful version of myself. And I continue to evolve and to change the things I want to change in my life and the structures I want to be a part of and not a part of. And, and I've seen that time and time again with people I've worked with, with both Trim and Krim, that once they are able to do that, that the best parts of themselves come up. And, and that is where I do think we have hope to change the world and that I do think that we can make a difference. Um, and so I would say, I just wanted to, to, you know, be with you in that thought that I have seen the absolute opposite, right. in the work that I've done with these models and what, what, what we do. Um, and I certainly have lived that in my own life as well. And so I would say empowerment and I, I you know, kind of want to end with um, when, a long time ago, Rena said to me, oh, Lane, we have to go to the Tata Institute and we have to share this with the women that I've met, the people that I've met at the Tata Institute that are social workers, the oldest school of social work in Asia. And we got to go. It was such a delight. And I have to tell you, she was right. They just embraced the model with such joy. And we had the best day there, didn't we? Um, in uh, sharing this. And I've never seen you. I mean, I've seen you happy, but you were pretty happy that day. I don't think <laughs> I could have there. smiled any bigger that <laughs> I don't day. Think so. I don't think so. So, well, my dear friend and colleague, it's so been so great to have you on the show. You're always inspiring to me. And I de- definitely think you were empowered. I <laughs> So, you don't have to worry about that. You definitely got that one going. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I say that with all Thank the love you, in the world. So um, I just want to say to our listeners from around the world, um, thank you for coming and listening to Resiliency Within. Um, remember what else is true in your life. Remember that each one of us can start paying attention to the sensations of well-being. Remember our app, I Chill, that we have in English and in Spanish and also soon, maybe next week in Ukrainian for our Ukrainian colleagues in um, that are suffering right now. And we just want to wish you all a good week and remember what else is true about life and remember your strengths. And until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off with my dear friend, Rena Patel, social worker extraordinaire. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karis is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.